Father of light, we pray that your spirit would reveal and illumine your presence in this room tonight, through your word, and in all of creation around us. You'd open our eyes to see your light and your beauty, your God colors, your, to taste your God flavors around us. We pray you shine your radiant holiness into our lives, that we may offer our hands and hearts to your work, to heal and shelter, to feed and clothe, and to break every yoke and silence every evil tongue. That the kingdoms of this world would find no more support because your people wholeheartedly support your kingdom first. And Jesus, you taught us to seek first your kingdom and all things will be added to us in our lack and in our need and in our desperation to fill aching voids and holes that we are seeking in the world. Forgive us and to remember to turn to what you said, that it is putting your kingdom first that fulfills all things. So teach us to prioritize your way of living in the world, your way of ruling humans, your way of relating with our neighbor. As we put your kingdom first, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight, Babylon falls. So it's going to be fun. Now, what if I invited everyone to a grand ball at my house? And you were surprised as you came to my house to this party to discover that the food was extravagant. On the table was all kinds of sea creatures that you could eat, from sushi to well-cooked maple fried salmon. Uh, There was every kind of delicacy, every kind of vegetable, every kind of color. The spread was gorgeous. But it wasn't just what it looked like. It was how it tasted. And it wasn't just how it tasted, but before you even came in, you were greeted with the utmost hospitality and welcome. You felt like you were treated like a king, like a queen, like a prince, like a princess. And the music in the atmosphere was perfect. Everybody was smiling. The punch bowl was amazing. Uh, everyone was just dis- discoursing very nicely. The dessert was beyond this world. You don't even know what it was, but the texture was amazing. It's it, just the way it sat on the tongue and went down. It, it felt as good as ice cream feels going down without the 15-minute later regret. And on your way out, you were greeted, or you were ushered out, you were given a, a, a fantastic gift, new shoes, new clothes, uh, some homemade desserts to take home, whatever it was your thing, it was like perfectly tailored for you. And you left, and everyone left impressed, going, wow, that was some ball, some party at Pastor Brandon's house. And then you found out that the entire party was supported and put on by 29 slaves who worked down at the lower level of my house. You would suddenly look very differently at that whole scene and maybe even feel guilty about the pleasure you experienced in it, wouldn't you? And yet, I found out this week that I have 29 slaves working for me. 
You can go on this site called uh, slaveryfootprint.org. It's in the bulletin. And you punch in some things. What kind of clothes you wear, what kind of gadgets you have, how big your house is, what kind of foods you eat. And it tracks, of course it's a good guesstimate, but it tracks all these things to what countries it's coming from. And the countries that are using slavery in order to create the products for us. 29 slaves. That's not counting my wife or my children. That's supporting me. I was appalled. One slave is one too many. 29. And yet we think that slavery ended with Abraham Lincoln 150 years ago. And yet it's around the world and it's slavery holds about 27 million people in bondage, 25% of which are children. And it brings an income to the owners, a grand total of 150 billion a year. This is a huge industry. And it goes around the world, and yet Americans continue on with their lives as though everyone's in a free world. <laughs> I don't mean to guilt trip us tonight, like, whew, everyone, all right, go home and feel bad about yourselves and stop buying anything. But I say this to awaken ourselves to the fact that all is not as well as we think it may be, and that we actually live on the wrong end of the biblical story. See, what we see with God coming in and judging Babylon, as we're about to see in Revelation 18, is that the judgment of God is meant to turn the tables of injustice. He comes and he turns those tables of injustice so that the bottom become the top, the weak become strong, the strong become weak, and those that were on top are now on the bottom. His judgment turns those tables of injustice because God really does value every single human life especially the oppressed lives. From early on in our biblical story, the Israelites are oppressed by the Egyptians. And the Bible story, the, the, the story of our God and our Bible comes to the aid not of the empire and the Egyptians, but to the aid of the oppressed Israelites to give them liberty and to give them their own life. Because God values all humans, especially the oppressed so when we read about his judgment, we see God coming in to turn the tables of injustice. And it's so ironic sometimes when we read prophecy, we read Revelation, we read the Bible, and we read it with the lens of how this applies to us without ever thinking twice about the fact that technically we are the empire in the narrative. We are not the oppressed people. And so we are often actually reading the Bible from the wrong end. And we may never actually understand a lot of the things it's saying until we are the oppressed, because that's who it's written to. The prophets always criticizing the kings of Israel, whom in their terms, actually, the kings of Israel became like the pharaohs of Egypt and began oppressing and enslaving and taxing their people. And the prophets stand up to criticize the kings and to side with the poor and the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, those that the government was neglecting. You might remember Solomon, right? Sometimes we look at Solomon and we think, oh, what a beautiful kingdom he made. He made the temple. And because we're Americans, we laud his accomplishments. Solomon was an accomplished fellow. It was all the ones that came after him that were less than pleased with. But if you actually look at the story closely, Solomon started the downfall of Israel because when he passed, 
the revolt and the split of the empire was over Solomon's policies. They asked his son, are you going to tax us like your father did? Are you going to put into forced work, aka slavery, some of our people like your father did? And what did his son arrogantly say? Oh, my father is going to look like a weakling next to me. And that caused the split in the kingdom. And that was Israel's downfall, was that they became more like Egypt than they were ever supposed to be. And the Bible comes continually to the side of the oppressed because God loves and values all human life. He has to side with the oppressed because justice turns the tables of injustice. That's what judgment does. And so we're going to see that here real quick. If you want to see the overview of how dramatic this is, I want you to look at 18 verse 10. In the middle, it says, Alas, alas, your great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Down in verse 17. For in a single hour all the wealth has been laid waste. In 19, in the middle, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she had been laid waste. The judgment comes swift and it comes sudden, and it comes absolute. The table is turned. And then the result we see at the very end of 21, well, the middle of 21. So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Look at the end of 22. The trumpets will be heard in you no more. That was the middle of 22. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. 23. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the, vi- the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. This constant, no more, no more. Six times, Babylon will be no more. Whatever defined Babylon, it's no more. And this is what we see is that this is the climax, the escalation, where all the streams of the ways of the world gather together into one river that dumps into the ocean where all evils leaking and seeping into that's what babylon represents and this system is going to fall and be no more no matter how wealthy one was made through the system no matter how great and how high one climbed the social ladder of the system it will be no more all the kingdoms will finally become the kingdom of our god and his christ so As a reminder, we are now in the third story of Revelation. It has three stories. The first story, chapters 1 through 11, shows us what happens when Jesus, represented as a lamb, steps up to the throne of God and receives the scroll to take the earth as his kingdom. And the world's called to attention about the new king. Story number two starts in chapter 12, and it zooms in on what's happening on the earth. 
and the anti-movement against Jesus. There's an anti-Christ called the beast. He has a kingdom. He has minions. He's violent. He oppresses people. He excludes people. They have to take the mark of his number on their forehead or on their hand and without which they cannot buy or sell. And then the third story begins in chapter 17 where we zoom in yet one more time and see even more closely what life is like under the beast and this antichrist. And so we look at his system, his city, and it's called Babylon. Now, real quick, the specifics. When we look at Revelation as a book forecasting the future, there, become, there comes a lot of debate about Babylon So there will be a one world ruler and he's going to have a one world government and a one world religion. And now the question becomes, what does it mean by Babylon? Does it mean that he's going to have an actual city rebuilt in the actual area of modern day Iraq in Babylon? Or don't get too excited. (laughs) Or is this going to be in actual Rome itself, where there's a lot of indications that there's a Roman, uh, the Antichrist should probably be European. It seems like he comes from Rome. Um, is, this go- is this code name for, um, is it called Babylon, but it's in Rome itself because this empire in Rome looks like the Babylon of old. So much debate of, I, I spent, this was years ago, this wasn't for tonight. I'm glad I didn't burn my energy on this tonight. But years ago, I read all kinds of debates and articles about, did the Babylon of old, the one that oppressed Israel and sent them into exile and destroyed their temple back in the 500s BC, did that Babylon get completely destroyed like the prophet said? See, Isaiah and Jeremiah said Babylon would be so wasted, not a single stone would remain. And so the articles go back and forth with, well, yes, obviously there is no Babylonian city today. You go out there in Iraq, it's desert. So yes, it was fulfilled. Others say, eh, technically there's still a few ruins left there. So not every single stone was actually removed. Therefore, in order to fulfill prophecy, the Antichrist will build a city in that area where ancient Babylon was and build a new Babylonia. And then that city will fall entirely. And thus prophecy will then finally be completely fulfilled. That's an interesting, nerdy theological debate for you guys to go home and say, I'm thankful I don't read that stuff. Um, We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But one thing we need to understand is that John is calling us to see Babylon in our present. And let me point this out to you. In verse 9, 4, 18 verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her. It's talking about Babylon. Remember, she was pictured like a prostitute last week. So it's just symbolic. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Come out of her, my people. Remember, John is writing in the 90s, 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus, to his struggling churches, not 
struggling to walk with Jesus, but struggling to endure the social persecution that's upon them. And he's writing to them to encourage them with these visions. Who is John talking about when he says, come out of Babylon, my people? Who is he talking about? Who's he talking to? Who are my people? See, on one hand, if Babylon is a future kingdom to come after the rapture of the church, well, then who are my people? Because the church is gone. Well, some would say those that are converted during this time period. That's a fair assumption, although I doubt those people are going to be intertwined in a system that's become very obviously evil to them because of the rapture and everything going on. On the other hand, if John's talking as a pastor in the present to his churches in real time, what is he calling them to come out of? We have to realize that though there could be a future Babylon, John is talking to actual people in need of actual pastoral direction. And he's asking his church, come out of Babylon for her sins have heaped as high as heaven. And so this is what I want to propose to you is that yes, there could be this future empire that is being prophesied about, but in the moment, there's something for the church here because the Babylon is going to be, like I said earlier, a moment ago, the climax of all the little Babylons before that. It's all headed somewhere. You start with the Tower of Babel itself. God was unhappy with the Tower of Babel. It says in Genesis 10 that he asked the people to spread around the world. Instead, they cluster and make the first metropolis that we know of. And they build this thing up. It doesn't say in the text, but it's meant to ask the question, why is this wrong? Well, who's building this magnificent tower? Who's building this city? They didn't have machines. This is the backs of slaves who's making this thing. And the reason God's unhappy is because a system is being built in which wealthy are ruling the impoverished and forcing them to build great monuments for them. For them too, by the way. It says, let us make a name for ourselves. Babylon then, you know, that tower gets judged. People disperse. We then see it show up in Egypt. Egypt is now enslaving people and working them. The Israelites have to build, we don't know what they built, but we presume pyramids and other cities for Pharaoh. They're being worked for Pharaoh's glory. Egypt gets judged. Then Babylon comes around and takes down the temple of Israel and puts the Jews, not necessarily to slavery in this instance, but he does oppress their lifestyle so that Babylon can be made better. We go forward. Jesus comes in. The Romans are now oppressing the world. And in Jesus's instance, he's not just looking at the Jews as oppressed by the Romans, but he's coming to the people that are oppressed by the religious system of the day, the least, the last, the lost, the people that weren't allowed to engage in society just because of some difference in their physicality, which the religious association was saying, that's a result of sin. That's why you're not worthy of our society. And Jesus said, forget those oppressive rules. I'm going after these people and making them count because the justice of God, the judgment of God is about turning the tables of injustice because of his great value of human life, especially the oppressed. And so when John is asking, come out of her, my people, what is he talking about? He's talking to them of their present expression of Babylon in their life, which, of course, in their instance, was the Roman Empire. 
The Roman Empire was called Babylon by Peter in one of his letters. It was called Babylon by the church um, often because Rome to them was like Babylon was to the Israelites. Babylon destroyed their temple. The Romans destroyed Israel's temple. And they were the oppressors of the people of God. So John is talking about, to them, Rome. So what does Babylon represent? It represents any domination system, which is fancy language in the smart people's world for those empires that rule over people. In short, a domination system is the political and economic oppression of the many over the few. Uh, excuse me, I, other way around. The political and, and economic oppression of the many by a few. So that what you have is this pyramid in which at the very top you have the 1% of the people dominating the 99% of the people. A domination system is marked by four things that you can identify. First, it was political oppression. 1% ruled the 99. (laughs) So 1% is making laws and rules for the world that affects the rest of the 99. Not to oversimplify, but this is the reverse of America. America was built upon the 99 making the laws, and the 1% making sure that those laws came about, right? That's democracy, oversimplified, but gives you the point. That Rome was the reverse. The very wealthy and powerful 1% did everything that affected the lives of 99% of the people. That's political oppression, which is backed up by, second, economic exploitation. In other words, all of the wealth was going in one direction, And when you rule the politics, you rule the money and where the money flows. So guess what they did? They were able to tweak the 1%, the wealthy, powerful 1%, were able to tweak the laws just enough to get the funds going towards them. So much so that some scholars estimate up to half of the people's income was being channeled to the wealthy 1%. So they're just getting wealthier and wealthier, and they're keeping under their thumb the 99%. To make matters worse, the Romans would establish local governments, right? So there's Caesar in Rome, and then he would allow local governments to rule. Well, the local governments had to fund their own cities, so they pulled taxes. But as subjects to the Roman Empire, and if you like your position and where you are, O king, you better pay Caesar your own taxes. So they're not just pulling taxes for their own city. They're pulling tribute from the people to give to Caesar as well. And then, of course, anything else that they want to stuff in their pockets. The whole system was rigged to keep the 1% at the top and the 99% struggling. So you have political oppression, economic exploitation. Then you have, best of all, religious legitimization. In other words, the 1% also rule the religions. So guess what you do? If anybody cries out that it's not fair that you're poor and they're rich... All they have to do is say, but the gods ordained it this way. The gods give wealth to those that sacrifice and come to the temples regularly. You must not be doing something right. And you get the whole religious system preaching this rhetoric. People believe the gods want these special people ruling the world for us. That's how, not hard to see how Caesar started calling himself the son of God. 
the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world. It was called the gospel when he was ascended to his throne. All these words he just rips out of the Bible, you know? It wasn't hard to see that that's what's going on. Justify the fact that I'm in charge of the world. Political oppression, economic exploitation, religious legitimization. I said it right that time. And finally, military intimidation. So you set up the politics to help the wealthy 1%. You exploit the economics to bring all the funds to the 1%. You say that God's ordered it this way, don't question it. And then to protect your wealth, you raise an army. And then when you feel like you need more wealth, you send that army out to go conquer other nations so you can get more wealth. This is what a domination system looks like. And this is exactly what the Roman Empire was built on. These four pillars. And so when John is talking about Babylon, we see these things shining through this passage ever so ugly, in a very ugly way. Look with me at what we see. Chapter 18. By the way, this whole thing reads as a funeral. We'll see next week in 19. It reads like a marriage. Interesting dynamics. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority on the earth and was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. In short, the way God did creation, he took a desolate place and made it beautiful in Genesis. This is the reverse. The great Babylon has become a desolate place. It is a decreated atmosphere. Verse three, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So the 1% benefited from Babylon, the prostitute. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, Don't partake in this system, this worldly system that seeks to enrich the self at the expense of others. Come out of that. You can hear John saying to his people, lest you partake in her sins and lest you share in her plagues for her sins are heaped as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her and the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Whoa, as great as her luxury, let her misery be just as great. This is huge reversing of the tables, right? Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen and am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Well, for this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire for mighty is the God who has judged her. You might remember in chapter 17, we saw the desolation, real brief, but gory desolation of the prostitute, the same city, pictured as a prostitute, Babylon, how those 10 kings ripped her flesh and burned her with fire. Chapter 18 is simply zooming in now that she's destroyed. What's the reaction of everyone? So we're seeing more of that destruction. 
So now we're going to see the kings, part of the wealthy 1% at their reaction. The kings of the earth, verse 9, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. So those that are dabbling in the wealth of Babylon, this is viewed as spiritual prostitution. Uh, They will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. You can just see them. In a single hour, a life's work of wealth is gone, just taken right out from under them. And the merchants of the earth, verse 11, more of that 1%. Uh, They weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, uh, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, and all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is human lives or souls. It's the same in the Greek. You can see that part about slaves being really this exclamation point. If you didn't think all that luxury was a sin, hint, hint, slaves were fueling the luxury. Some estimate that 50% of the Roman empire was slaves. The other 50% were free. Where did the slaves come from? Well, before the Roman peace called the Pax Romana, which was during John's time, before that, the Romans would get slaves from territories in which they conquered. So when they went to what's today Germany, they would conquer those people and they would take many of them as slaves and then take them to Rome and sell them in the marketplace for people to buy so that the slaves could make the wealthy have all their stuff, cook their food for them, and set their tables. And the wealthy owned a lot of slaves. Uh, slaves weren't always abused, but they were treated like tools. If you think about it today, uh, your refrigerator takes the place of what would have been a slave in ancient times, maybe five slaves in ancient times, because your fridge keeps food cold, where a slave might have had to go do a lot of work to get something cold and bring it to the home and back and forth. Uh, your, your leaf blower or whatever you used to get rid of your pine needles, right? If you're not using a rake, that blower is taking the place of manual labor. So, I mean, you get the idea uh, that slaves were very prevalent in the wealthy. Um, So they would get it that way. But when Rome hit this period of peace, which they were in John's time, the sourcing of slaves disappeared. So what they began to turn to was a very common problem in the empire. And that was the poorer families that didn't feel capable of taking care of babies. What you would do if you were poor and felt like you couldn't take care of your babies, you simply dumped them in the street and left them. Very common practice among the poor. And the baby's fate was left to the birds or the dogs. Or what also started happening where people would snatch the babies and then sell them to slave traders so that they were grown up, and when they were old enough and strong enough, they could be sold off. Interestingly, Asia, the area that John's writing to his churches, they actually sourced a lot of slaves for the empire. And it's very possible that Ephesus was one of the ports in which these children were being shipped off to Rome, and that they, the church, may have seen much of these slaves being shipped off. 
And so we see that all this luxury is coming to Rome at the expense of human lives. Now we look at some of these luxury items in here. Uh, He lists a lot. Gold and silver is the first. The gold and silver came from Spain where they had mines. And in these mines, it was, guess who mined the gold and silver? Right, slaves. The life expectancy, once you started working in the mines, was only a few years. So people were going in young to work and dying young because of the labor um, some more of the, a lot of this stuff you see mentioned here is stuff that would be very expensive because it's coming from very far regions of the world. So it's showing you the extravagant wealth of the 1% in Rome, just able to bring whatever they wanted to their empire. Uh, one example is the, uh, it says right there, the costly wood at the end of verse 12, all kinds of articles of costly wood. There's one account in which a table made of citron wood was sold for the price of a large estate. That's how costly a single table could be made with the right wood. It also says a lot of things were inlaid with ivory in the middle of verse 12. Ivory was so, the wealthy were buying so much ivory that the elephants in Syria were on the brink of extinction. I don't know. I mean, there are no elephants in Syria today, right? So you can see what did end up happening uh, the ivory was huge and it was reaping or just basically raping creation of some of its resources. Um, there's one account. This is obviously an unusual circumstance, but it gives you an idea of one wealthy Roman who in one year spent the equivalent of $20 million just on extravagant food. Food like peacock brain and nightingale tongue. Okay, this is the kind of luxury and waste that is going on. You're blowing money on peacock brain and nightingale tongue. (laughs) Right? So um, what we see here is this gross wealth at the expense of people around the world. That's why John includes and slaves that is human souls. Well, we continue to see in verse 15 that the merchants are continuing to weep and mourn. Verse 16, more alas, alas, because all of our goods are gone. For in a single hour, this wealth has been laid waste. In the middle of verse 17, the shipmasters and seafaring men, all of them are crying out too. They're mourning, you know, what a great city this was. Verse 19, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, the great city. We already read this for in a single hour, she's laid waste. But then verse 20, the sudden shift, which you'll see more of next week. Rejoice, <laughs> rejoice over her, O heaven. And you, saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. God has turned the tables of injustice, the much, the much abused human lives and slavery to keep giving luxury to the wealth. God has turned those tables. That's worth rejoicing. Human life is being valued and those who had their life robbed from them are going to get their lives back. 21, uh, we, we read... A lot of this, we, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. 
You might remember in Jeremiah, golly, that was like two years ago, maybe three. I don't know. Time flies when you have kids. Um, but when we were in Jeremiah last, Jeremiah did the same thing symbolically. He took this big stone and threw it and said, this is what will happen to Babylon. Just to let Israel know, don't, don't worry. God's got a plan. And so John here in his vision is seeing what he knows from reading in, in Jeremiah. That, that this is what the angel does. So the great empire will fall. Uh, and then we read all the no mores, the joy, the wealth, the fun festivities are no more. And then the very end in verse 24, the one verse we hadn't read yet. And in her Babylon was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. So not only is common human life in disdain and being abused, but the people of God are being persecuted and killed. But God has a lot of reasons saying it's time to turn the tables of injustice. So what Rome has been doing, in a sense, is a lot like this game of Jenga. Every domination system defined by those four things, right? The political, economic, religious, and military corruption. They've been doing the same thing. So whether it's Egypt, whether it's the Roman Empire, or whether it's a future thing that a future Antichrist is going to lead, they all operate like this. So you have the wealthy 1% on the top that want luxury, they want to get bigger and better, and then you have all the rest. And the game of Jenga... If you've never played it, you don't have to raise your hand and embarrass yourself, but just kidding. But it's a very simple game in which you simply try to get the tower taller and taller, and you don't want to be the guy that makes it fall. Because the way you get it taller is not by getting a nice box of more blocks and keeping them adding more. No, you get it taller by risking the actual foundation of the tower. So, in other words, you have to pull from the bottom very wisely. I'm going to make the whole thing fall on the first try. That's not going to be good. Yeah, like that. You find one, you pull it out from the bottom, you put it on the top, boom. And you keep doing this. But what you're seeing is you're seeing an economy in which relies upon the poor and the oppressed and taking advantage of human lives or of their welfare and taking it from them and enriching yourself. So yes, you keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But as you can see, it's only going to be a matter of time I'm making bad choices. That's precarious. Okay. So it's going to happen real quick. It's only a matter of time until the whole thing collapses on itself. Sometimes I've learned you just have to go for it. It's the worried people that make it fall. Um, The whole thing eventually, it's getting weaker. It's eventually going to... Well, you see, and the Romans were good because they lasted longer than any other empire, right? They were very selective in how they did this. So you can be selective. But in time, like John's saying, the world systems, this is how the world works. And eventually the world will collapse on itself. (laughs) That was a visual of verse Five, for her sins are heaped like the tower, one more higher, one more higher. They're heaped as high as heaven, but they can only get so high before the whole system collapses. So we talk about, you know, does God actually come and punch them in the face? 
I mean, that's kind of like our human way because we think like, I just want to go get him. Or does God stand back and simply let evil continue going because he knows eventually it's going to collapse on itself. Then God steps in to deliver the oppressed and gets all the credit. Either way you look at it, it's fine. Um, I think one's better. (laughs) You guys don't laugh enough. Okay. Are you taking me too seriously? I don't know. Um, I do have a question though. So as we talk about the future Babylon, as we talk about the past Babylon, the Roman Empire, it's easy for us to do this as Bible scholars and students to say, all right, that's great for those times. But I have to ask the question, does America fit into the domination system? Now, we may not in every single one of the four categories, but there's an awful lot of comparison And we're just not aware of it because we don't have slaves living in our household. You don't come to a party I throw and see 29 slaves washing your feet and serving your food and working and sweating in the kitchen. You don't see that. But behind so much of what we buy is slavery. Um, And that's just the slavery part. We are the wealthy 1% of the world. And we accumulate so much for ourselves. And... We have to be careful that we are not part of the system and encouraging the system. That we don't continually buy more than we need without thinking, is this affecting someone else's life somewhere else? This is complicated because our entire infrastructure is built upon this and we aren't able to suddenly wake up and say, oh my gosh, this is all evil, change everything. Because suddenly you start looking at all your labels, everything's made somewhere that does child labor or slavery. Every, almost everything. And you start looking at your coffee. Does it have fair trade on it? If it doesn't, slaves were used to make your coffee. Coffee, chocolate, those are some of the big ones. Uh, that's just a simple thing you do. It doesn't say fair trade. Fair trade means slavery wasn't used because the people were paid a fair wage for their work. Um, but just everything we do, so it's almost impossible to just say, okay, stop it all, because you're going to find out our system isn't built for a free world. It's built on the backs of slaves. Our luxury at the expense of others' slavery. That's how it's worked. And yet we wave our flag and say, God has blessed America. And we say that that wealth is a result of God? Or is it a result of our manipulating the weaker nations to enrich ourselves? The UN put out a report a few years ago that said 30 to $40 billion is all we would need to give the world adequate education, healthcare, and clean water. 30 to $40 billion will provide that for every developing nation. That's also the same sum that's spent on golf. But that sum, that sum pales in comparison to what one of our presidents put in motion, and we'll see if our other president continues it, to spend a trillion dollars over the next 30 years to modernize our nuclear warheads. Those bombs that could potentially destroy the entire planet and all of human civilization. Let's spend a trillion dollars to modernize those things while that price tag could 
help the entire world 25 times over. We could support 25 planets with that money. And yet we want to build up our arsenal. Not saying we don't need a military, but I am questioning where our money goes and how much of it goes. That does seem very Babylonish, doesn't it? Or the new aircraft carrier we just launched out. Do we really need another new aircraft carrier? We have more than any other nation. Do we need a new modern one? Well, we just launched one at $13 billion. Was that necessary? Because ISIS has a bunch of aircraft carriers, right? It just, you just wonder, who runs our government? And I'm not talking about the people or the party. I'm talking about the powers that lie beneath that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. The principalities, the powers, the spiritual warfare. Who is running our country? Maybe we're closer to the prostitute, to the beast, than we thought we were. I'm not saying we are the fulfillment of prophecy. I'm, I'm just saying I think that we might be living in a time closer to that than we thought. One verse, one application, we're done. Ezekiel 16, 49. You can jot it down. Ezekiel 16, 49. That's what it says. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Ezekiel's talking to Israel. This is the guilt of your sister Sodom. Remember that evil city that God just blew up with fire and brimstone back in Genesis? Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease. Pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease. In other words, leisure and luxury, the American dream. But it gets worse. They had all that, which may not have been a sin in itself, except for this part, but did not aid the poor and needy. They had way more than they needed and did nothing with it except get themselves excessively loaded with materialism. That was the sin of Sodom. We saw their end. We saw Rome's end. We know what happened to the Roman Empire. What will happen to America? What's it going to look like in the future if the church doesn't come out of her, if we don't say enough's enough and think about how we live. Again, I don't have answers, but we can start thinking about how we treat our neighbor and the person next to us. We can also think about following the lamb, the lamb who's calling us out of Babylon. That's the prostitute. The lamb's leading us a different way. The lamb's leading us to the marriage supper of the lamb and we'll see next week. And the lamb is leading us by a different way because we see in the ministry of Jesus, right after he's baptized, he goes through three tests in the wilderness by Satan himself. You remember this? The three temptations and he passes all three. It's as if he comes out of the waters of the baptism. The announcement says, this is my son. Listen to him. He, I'm well pleased with him. Follow him. This is the son of God. And he comes out of the water. People begin to follow him. John's pointing people that way, that way. He's our new leader who's bringing us into a new exodus of liberty. And then we're wondering, but wait a minute, what kind of Messiah, what kind of king is this son of God? And the desert tells us what kind he is. Turn these stones into bread. Are you going to have economic power? Are you going to exploit the economy? And Jesus says, no. 
Jump off of this building and call on God to save you. Are you going to use religion to legitimize your policies? Jesus is not going to abuse religion. He said, no. Oh, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Fall down and worship me, Satan says. They'll be yours. Political power. And Jesus says, no. All of those. Jesus says, I will not use political oppression. I will not use economic exploitation. I will not use religious legitimization. And by the cross, we see that he also said, I will not use military intimidation like the Romans do. I'm actually going to die at the hands of that military intimidation. This is a very different king and a very different kingdom than we've been modeled for thousands and thousands of years. And that's what John is showing us. Look, the model you've seen, it will collapse. It will be no more, no more, no more, no more, no more, no more in a single hour. But the kingdom of God, which we're going to see in its final and full eternal glory at the end of this book, it will remain. And so come out of her, my people, and follow the Lamb. Let us not subscribe to more stuff, more luxury, more leisure, more wealth, more possessions, uh, nationalism, militarism, hedonism, all of that. You list the, the, the gods of our world. Come out of that and let's follow our lamb to the kind of resistance that says, we don't pay any attention to that. We don't partake in that. We live a different kind of selflessness, of giving like the lamb who appeared as those slain in the vision of heaven back in five. We follow the lamb even at the cost of ourselves, not our luxury at the expense of their slavery. If you want to end like the Jenga tower, keep going (laughs) in that way. But if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, we're on the eve of reading about and studying. Let's keep following the lamb. Be encouraged, saints. You, you see where you're going and see also how you're different than the gods of this world. And come out of that. Let's not buy in.